Well, for quite some time now, as those of you who have been in this study um, know, we've been studying the various events and words of the Lord's earthly life which occurred on Tuesday of the Passion Week, the last week of his earthly pre-resurrection life. And we have learned that that was a very, very significant day. In fact, there is more recorded in the scripture about the events and the circumstances of this one day than of any other day in the Lord's life. It was, as we've already seen, a day of great controversy because the Lord, after having observed that withered fig tree which he had cursed on Monday morning, um, he arrived at the temple in Jerusalem. He always, when he would get to the city, he would go immediately to the temple. And he was almost immediately met by four consecutive attacks from his opponents, the religious authorities of Israel. As we learned, as we discussed each one of those four attacks, all of which were designed to ensnare Jesus, to trap him into condemning himself by his answers, he amazingly responded to each one, each seemingly impossible trap, by silencing his opponents with his great wisdom and his knowledge of the scriptures. So that by the time of that final attack, which came by a, a scribe, do you remember what Luke had written? He said, and after that, they durst not ask him any questions at all. That was in Luke 20:40. After that final attack, when they were completely silenced, no one dared to ever ask him a question again. Well, following his Tuesday encounters with the religious establishment of Israel, the Lord then launched an attack of his own. This time he asked a question. He asked the question, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That was in Matthew 22:42. Well, his response to the very typical Jewish answer that the Christ is the son of David, the Lord's response to that was so scripturally sound, coming right from Psalm 110, verse 1, and it was so theologically deep that once again he devastated his opponents because they were totally unable to answer him without admitting that he had every scriptural right to claim not only messiahship, but even equality with God himself. So we found that Matthew wrote at the conclusion of, his, of this encounter, no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. That was Matthew 22:46. And then, in uh, Matthew chapter 23, came the harshest words that ever issued from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. In what we entitled the Denunciation Discourse, which we looked at in two lessons, Lesson 128 and 129, Jesus fired away at the scribes and the Pharisees, aiming right at the heart of the reason for their unbelief, which was their pride and their hypocrisy. And concluding his denunciation of the religious leadership of the nation, he then next expressed his third and final lamentation over the city of of Jerusalem. And that's where I'd like you to open up your Bibles right now to Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, his third and final lamentation over the city of Jerusalem. We've already discussed these, but I want to just review. It grieved the Lord's heart immensely that his beloved city, the beloved city of Jerusalem, and his own people, the Jewish people, would not repent of their sins and believe on him. He knew that God's divine judgment lay in store for Israel and for the holy city, and so his heart was very heavy. We hear that when we read the words that he said here. We hear the heaviness and the sorrow in his heart as he says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. And then he said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That was verses 37 to 39 there in Matthew 23. He had been offering Israel security, salvation, you know, salvation, security, and physical security protection. He had been offering her divine guidance and a continual supply of her every need. And that was a genuine offer because he was the true Messiah. 
He is the true Messiah. And he was offering the Jewish people the literal kingdom on earth, which the Lord God had promised throughout the Old Testament. And yet, despite all of his many undeniable messianic credentials, the Jewish people had rejected him. Notice the, the, the words at the end of verse 37. He didn't say, ye could not. He said, uh, ye would not. He would. He would have them. Often, he said, he would have gathered them under his wings. But they would not. They would not come unto him. So after three and a half years of continual invitation to come to him and receive the temporal blessings of the earthly messianic kingdom and the eternal blessings of salvation, what was the response of the nation corporately? It was rejection. The tragic result of her rejection was that divine judgment would fall upon her. And when it came, it would be devastating. He prophetically told the people, the Jewish people, that their house would be left unto them desolate. Verse 38. And the word house there can refer to the nation of Israel, or it can refer to the city of Jerusalem, or more specifically, that's in general it does refer to the nation and to the city, but most specifically it refers to the temple in the city of Jerusalem. We know that all three were included in the divine judgment that did occur in 70 AD. But the primary interpretation is that the Lord here spoke of the temple. Her temple, her house, would be left desolate. And perhaps as he spoke those words, he even pointed to the magnificent building around him. We know that throughout the Old Testament scripture, the prophet spoke of the temple as the house of God. So specifically, he was prophesying that the temple would be desolated. When Israel rejected him, she rejected the one the temple was made to worship. And the one of whom the temple, with all of its sacrifices and offerings, pointed. So it was no longer God's temple. It was their temple. Jesus said to the Jews, your house is left unto you desolate. He was finished with his attempts to get them to receive the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, back into the temple. Remember that glory had departed back in Ezekiel's day. But it had returned in the person of Jesus Christ. If the people of Israel had accepted Jesus, the temple once again would have been filled with the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory. But as we're going to see when we begin today's lesson, he departed from the temple not to return again until his second coming. So when he leaves the temple on this Tuesday of the Passion Week, which we're going to see he does in the very first verse of chapter 24, he will not set foot in it again until the time of his second coming. Now, of course, from where we stand historically, you and I know that the Lord's prophecy regarding the desolation of the temple and Jerusalem and all Israel was indeed literally fulfilled in 70 AD. It was fulfilled. God used the Roman legions under the direction of General Titus to implement his judgment. But the last verse of Matthew 23, verse 39, we don't want to forget about it because it is, it is very important. Because it indicates that the, the desolation and the destruction which would happen to the nation of Israel would only be a temporary thing. In other words, as I have discussed with you numerous times throughout our Life of Christ study, there was not to be a cancellation of the kingdom which Jesus had come to offer, the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. It wasn't going to be canceled. It was going to be postponed. He said, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This clearly, absolutely clearly tells us that there will come a time when Israel will acknowledge the Lord Jesus as both her rightful Davidic king, her savior, her Lord, and her Messiah. Of course, she's going to have to go through a terrible time of tribulation to prepare her for that moment when she finally accept, accepts him. But she will indeed one day accept him. God is not finished with Israel. Well, his statement to Israel then, before he departed from the temple for the last time, was that she would not see him publicly again as the Messiah offering the kingdom. Now, she would see him publicly 
again hanging from the cross, but she wouldn't see him publicly as the Messiah offering the kingdom until she indeed acknowledged him as her Messiah. So the obvious truth that we can draw from this statement is that there is yet coming a time when Israel will accept the Lord Jesus Christ as her King and Savior. And, and we're going to learn in our discussion of the Olivet Discourse exactly when this time will be. Well, following the Lord's denunciation discourse and his final words of lamentation and prophetic judgment upon Israel, he went into the court of the women where the treasury, the temple treasury, was located. And there he observed a solitary widow giving all that she had, which was simply two mites. She gave her two meager mites as an offering to God there in the temple. And that event, most likely presented at this strategic time, was given to demonstrate that even in the midst of all the hypocrisy and all the pride and all the sham and the show and the cold-hearted rejection of the vast majority of the people of Christ's day, there was, as there always is in every generation, a small remnant of those who are symbolized by this anonymous godly woman who are true men and women of faith. We can be absolutely sure that this woman, who willingly gave all that she had to God, not knowing that God himself was in her very presence watching her, we can be sure that she brought to his heart, the Lord's heart, a very, very special delight. She served to remind the Lord Jesus at this time of his mixed grief and his righteous indignation of the remnant of Israel. She reminded him of the remnant who despite what they were being told by their corrupt and blinded spiritual leaders were yet men and women of true faith in God and therefore true faith in God's Son. I personally, I personally believe that God the Father sovereignly placed this woman in the temple that day directly before the eyes of his heavy-hearted heavy son precisely at the moment he needed to be uplifted. I think she was a gift of God's grace to his own son. She was a source of joy for Jesus. And I hope that is what each and every one of us are as we give of ourselves freely to the Lord as well. That we are joy, that we are a source of joy for Jesus. Don't you want that? It would be something to pray for. Lord, help me to be a source of joy for you. Well, with that review of where we are in our study of the events that transpired on Tuesday of the final week of the Lord's physical life on earth, we come now to the most important prophetic address that came, ever came, from the greatest prophet of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this prophetic sermon, which happens to be the 11th recorded sermon in our Life of Christ study, is most completely found in Matthew 24 and 25, but it is also recorded, although less thoroughly, over in Mark 13, verses 5 to 37, and also in Luke 21, verses 8 to 36. But we are primarily going to be looking at Matthew's record of this discourse. Now, as you know, this sermon is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse, and the reason for that is that it was given, it was spoken, on the small hill just outside the eastern gate of Jerusalem, which is known as what? the Mount of Olives, and that is why it is called the Olivet Discourse. It was upon this mountain to the east of the city of Jerusalem, as the Lord stopped to sit down and rest a bit, that his disciples came to him with some questions, and those questions launched him into giving the longest answer to any question in all of the New Testament, and that answer was given in the Olivet Discourse. As we're going to come to realize, the truths contained in this sermon are vitally, vitally essential for a clear understanding of the Lord's return at the second coming. This is not about the rapture. It is about the return at the end of the seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Christ. And uh, all it's very under, it's very important for us to know this discourse so that we understand all the various events that precede and are associated with the Lord's second coming. In our study of this 
discourse, we're going to look at three main divisions. Very easy. We're just going to look today at the setting for the discourse and the subject of the discourse. And then in all the rest of the lessons, we're going to be looking at the sermon itself. So the setting, the subject, and the sermon. And um, under the setting, we have three things going on. In the first part, we're going to talk about the Lord's departure from the temple, which I had just mentioned. Then we're going to discuss the disciples' delight in the temple. And thirdly, we will um, see how the Lord greatly shocked the men, his men, when he spoke of the coming destruction of the temple. So let's begin, first of all, by reading Matthew 24. You know, I think I'm going to go ahead and read all three verses. We're only going to cover three verses in today's lesson, but let's read those three verses and then we'll just break them down into the departure, the delight, and the destruction. Okay, so let's look, if you look with me at Matthew 24, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. It says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now this is after they have departed and they're a distance away and the disciples, you know, turn around, they're looking back at the temple and they point it out to the Lord. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, I do want to read at this point what Mark says, because he tells us what the disciples said when they were showing him the, the buildings of the temple. Look at Mark 13, first part of verse, or let's look at verse 1. It says, And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. So, in other words, they're pointing out to him how magnificent. One of them is a spokesperson, and probably was Peter, and says, Look how magnificent this building is. Look at those stones. Look at that building. And then he goes on to answer them and say, You know, See thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. All right, Jesus had spent, you can go back to Matthew now, Matthew 24. Jesus had spent his entire Tuesday, other than his walk from Bethany in the early morning, in the temple. Other, other than that walk, he had spent his whole Tuesday in the temple. And we had a, uh, as I reviewed in our introduction, he had had a very challenging and tiring day, a long day. He not only gave his last public messages in the responses he gave to the four attacks by his opponents, but he had also pronounced his last and most intense judgment on the hypocritical religious establishment and the nation of Israel as a whole. So he was tired. In his humanity, he was weary and tired. And the day was drawing to a close. So it was time to head back to Bethany, where he would, along with his disciples, spend the night in the home of who? his dear friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, who, of course, by this time he had already raised from the dead. So he departed from the temple. Mark and Matthew both mention this departure in very simple terms. And yet no one except the Lord himself realized the great significance of that departure because, as I've just mentioned, he would not again step into the temple in Jerusalem until the time of his second advent. So that's very, very critical when it says he departed from the temple. That is the last time. The glory of, of God, the Shekinah glory, which in the days of the tabernacle and the days of the first temple, Solomon's temple, dwelt in the Holy of Holies above the uh, seat of the Ark of the Covenant, had departed back in Ezekiel's day. But when Christ came to earth, the Shekinah glory of God returned to Israel, although in veiled human flesh. There was only one time that Jesus allowed men to behold that unveiled glory, and where was that? It was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the three who witnessed it were Peter, James, and John. Once again, the Jewish people had God present with them. 
for 33 years. And they could have had God present with them permanently. But, sadly, they were content without him. They had developed their own system of self-righteousness during the long years of his absence. And so, when he did return, when the glory of God veiled in human flesh did return, they saw him as little more than a nuisance, who very soon became a source of great irritation to their status quo. So they rejected him. They didn't want God in their temple, their temple. And since the Lord never forces himself upon anyone, what did he do? He departed. It was a very, very sad day for Israel, although she did not know it. And she still does not know it to this very day. She does not realize the significance of the Lord Jesus' departure from Herod's temple on Tuesday afternoon of his Passion Week. Only at the time of his return will she finally realize the magnitude of the mistake that she made when she caused Jesus to depart from her presence that very, very sad and tragic day long ago. Well, when the Lord departed the temple to go on his way, which was toward the east to the Mount of Olives and then on to Bethany, his disciples drew his attention to the magnificence of the temple. In great admiration, they said to him, or one of them said, as their spokesman, they said to him, in essence, Master, look at how wonderful these buildings are and how they are adorned. This, By the way, this is over in Luke 21, 5, where they talk about how, how the buildings are adorned with precious stones and gifts. And they're, they're saying, what a, what a truly magnificent edifice this is, Lord. Look at it. Isn't it marvelous? And they were correct. They were absolutely correct in their assessment of the temple buildings, which Herod the Great had begun some 50 years earlier. In about 20 B.C., he had begun to build it, and it would not be completed until 64 A.D. It was in the, in the process of being built for 84 years and it existed in its completed form for only six years. And then it was destroyed, just as Jesus predicted. It was just utterly destroyed, not one stone upon another, in 70 A.D. It wasn't completed until 64 A.D., and only six years later it was destroyed. Amazing. Herod the Great was the one who built, had the temple built, or began the building of the temple, and he was a master builder. But he was also an egomaniac. He was paranoid, too. He was a uh, pernicious, evil man who wanted this great contribution to the world to outlast even the Egyptian pyramids. Of course, he wasn't doing it uh, for the worship of God, for the glory of God, because he didn't even worship God. He just wanted it to be a monument to his memory. So he spared no expense in constructing and, and in adorning the temple. All he did to pay for it was tax the Jews even heavier. Seems like there's nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> Still just tax the people. The uh, Roman historian Tacitus recorded that the Jerusalem temple was a place of immense wealth. The Babylonian Talmud states that a person who had never seen the temple of Herod had never seen a fine building. Flavius Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, never seemed to grow tired of, of writing about the beauty of the temple of Christ's day. In his book, which is entitled The Wars of the Jews, he wrote this. He says, quote, The outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But the temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow, for as to those parts of it that were not gilt, meaning not gilt with gold, they were exceeding white. End of quote. Sounds like an unbelievably magnificent sight. The, the pillars of the temple were columns made of white marble, and they were 40 feet tall. 
Each one of those columns was made out of a single block of stone. Herod the Great had employed 10,000 skilled masons to do the stonework of the temple, and he had secured a 1,000 wagons to haul the massive stones, some of them weighing up to 100 tons, some of them measuring 40 feet long by 12 feet wide and 12 feet high. They're huge stones. So he had 1,000 wagons to haul them from the, from the quarries to the building site. It was made of uh, beautiful white marble and gold and could easily hold 120,000 worshipers. Ordinary temple, uh, daily temple rituals required the services of a thousand priests and Levites. That just, you know, day, day by day services and rituals took um, the services of a thousand priests and Levites. Can you imagine? And during special feasts like uh, the Passover, there were some 18,000 priests on hand. And that doesn't even include the Levites. 18,000 priests. You know, they had a lot of sacrifices at that time. Two to three million people, so they, it took 18,000 priests. That's just that's awesome to think about. Well, so naturally, the Jewish people were immensely proud of their temple, as we see here also were the disciples I mean to these simple Galilean fishermen such a spectacle as the temple in Jerusalem is just breathtaking to them and as they were looking back at this marvelous structure as they were leaving the city heading toward the the Mount of Olives they were probably wondering how it was that Jesus could have just said it would be left desolate remember that's what he said in Matthew 23:38. along with the rest of their people they knew of absolutely nothing more substantial in their national and spiritual lives than this fantastic Colossus temple. It was the most solid, permanent-looking physical thing that they knew of. So we can imagine their surprise when they heard the Lord's response to their comments regarding its greatness. And his response gives us another prophetic forecast made by the Lord Jesus during his earthly lifetime and in that response which is in verse 2 he clearly predicted the destruction of Herod's temple actually his prediction goes beyond a mere statement that it would be destroyed because he said in specific detail that not one stone would be left upon another let's look at that again it says in verse 2 and Jesus said unto them see not all these things Verily, I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Previously, if you remember, the Lord had predicted the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. On the day of his triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, in, into Jerusalem, when he officially presented himself to Israel as her Messiah, remember he lamented, over the willful blindness of the Pharisees. This was in Luke 19, verses 39 to 42. And he had said, quote, For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Actually, that was in verses 43 to 44 of Luke 19. So Jesus previously had predicted Jerusalem's destruction in specific details. And now he's predicting the temple's destruction in specific detail, saying that not one magnificent temple stone would be left upon another. And this is exactly what happened. We have the advantage, again, of hindsight. We know that this is what happened in history. His prophecy came true when Titus Vespasian and his Roman forces attacked the city of Jerusalem. They violated the instruction of their general not to destroy the temple. And they set fire to it. And in the midst of the blazing fire, the gold, which had been lavishly used in the beautification of that temple, the gold melted and it seeped into the cracks which separated the stones of the temple. So when the fi fire finally burned out and the, and the stones cooled off, the soldiers 
the Roman soldiers literally pried apart every single stone in their efforts to get to the gold, which had melted and settled down between the cracks. Little did these greedy men realize that they were, in doing that, they were actually fulfilling the prophetic words of the Lord Jesus Christ, which had been spoken some 37 years earlier at the time of our text here. Amazing. Well, this statement, although it is clear to us from our vantage point of history, um, this statement, when the, when the disciples heard it, it was totally devastating. It was just incomprehensible to them. And we find them, after he gave this prophecy, we find them walking in silence and not saying a word as they then walked the remainder of the way from the city by way of the eastern gate. They'd go out the city through the eastern gate. They would go down and cross the Kidron Valley and then ascend up to the Mount of Olives. And in that walk, we don't hear them say a single word. They were just absolutely astonished. Well, now we come to the subject of the Olivet Discourse. And for this, we um, let's read again verse 3. It says, And as he, that would be, of course, Jesus, sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? Obviously, they'd been thinking for a while about what he had just said. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? The prophecy regarding the utter destruction of the magnificent temple, the pride and joy of the Jewish people, had indeed alarmed the disciples. So four of them... Peter, James, John, and Andrew. This we learn from Mark 13:3. Um, as as the spokesman for the other eight disciples, four of them approached Jesus privately when he sat down for a rest up there on the crest of the Mount of Olives. You know, from that lofty vantage point, you can look at the whole city of Jerusalem and see the Colossus Temple that would have all been in the view below them. And these four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, <clears throat> the first four disciples Jesus ever had, they uh, proceeded to ask Jesus three questions. Three questions. And two of these three questions really are the same question. So basically two questions they asked him. And it's very important, it's very critical, it's mandatory that we understand those two basic questions if we are ever to understand the prophecy which is contained in the Lord's answer. And his answer, of course, is what we call the Olivet Discourse. So we have to understand the questions before we ever can understand the answer. The first question the disciples asked was, when shall these things be? Now the words, these things, refer back to the things Jesus had just spoken of. What things? Well, the desolation of the house of God, Matthew twenty-three thirty-eight, and most recently he had just talked about the destruction of the house of God. That was in twenty-four two. So these things refers to the desolation of the house of God and the destruction of the house of God. The second question asked by the two sets of brothers. Peter and Andrew were brothers, you know, and James and John were brothers. The second question was, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, before we get into the meaning of this two-part question, there are several words that we're going to need to look at in the original Greek so that we have a better understanding of exactly what they were asking. Very important to understand what they were asking. All right, first word we want to look at in the original Greek is the word coming. What shall be the sign of thy coming? In Greek, this is the word parousia. It's a technical word used for the visit of a ruler who was coming from his home province on an official visit to a subordinate or a distant, distant province. Uh, for example, if Caesar left Rome to visit one of the distant provinces under Roman domain, such as Bithynia or Judea, he came, he would come to that province on a parousia. 
Now, in their question to Jesus, the disciples were asking to know when he would come as ruler on his official parousia, parousia, his visit, to earth again. They obviously understood what he had said in Matthew 23:39 when he had stated that Israel would not see him again until they would say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They realized, therefore, that he would be returning to Israel. And at that time, her people would recognize him as Messiah and King. So these four disciples were asking Jesus this, essentially, what will be the sign that you are going to return in the parousia as the Messiah, offering the kingdom and ready to establish a kingdom when you will be recognized and accepted by our people? What will be the sign that you're going to return as ruler? Now, the second word that we want to look at is the word world, which is um, the, the Greek word ionos, which is really, uh, it speaks of an age. It it's, should be age. What will be the sign of thy coming and of the end, not the end of the world, but the end of the age. The disciples were asking about the end of the age, not the end of the world. They were requesting a sign that would precede the Lord's second coming, not a sign that would precede the end of the world. The end of the world won't come until after the millennial kingdom. And, you know, Satan is loosed. He, he's thrown into the bottomless pit for the thousand years of the kingdom. And then he's loosed for a little season. And he has a final rebellion. You can read about that in Revelation uh, 20 and 21. But um, there's a, a short rebellion which is quickly squelched by the Lord. And then this present earth and heavens are burned up and the Lord establishes a new heavens and a new earth. That's the end of this world. But uh, that's not what they're asking about. They knew that the Lord's return would simultaneously bring about the consummation, the end of this present age. So they're asking about when would be the time, the, what would be the sign of his return and the sign that would end this present age of waiting for the messianic kingdom now this two-part latter question tells us that the disciples had come to some certain conclusions they understood that the prophet Zechariah had predicted the coming of the Messiah to establish his kingdom that's in Zechariah 14 and they also understood that Zechariah had further predicted that the, the Messiah's coming was to be preceded listen to this his coming was to be preceded by an invasion of Jerusalem. It might be important if you would turn to Zechariah, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, toward the end of the Old Testament, and find Zechariah 14. I want to read you precisely what Zechariah, under divine inspiration, of course, what he wrote, and it might help you if you look at this. Uh, Zechariah 14. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 and then skip down to verse 9. If you can follow me or just look at it and see if you can find where I am. But he wrote this, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. He's talking there, of course, to Israel, specifically to Jerusalem. Your spoil will be divided. For I... God will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. What is that battle? That's the battle of Armageddon. And he says, And the city shall be taken, and the houses rif rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And let's see, go down to verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. 
so the disciples knew about this prophecy and to their thinking now you have to think the way they were thinking the the lord's prophetic words you can go back to matthew 24 the lord's prophetic words about the destruction of jerusalem fit the destruction prophesied by zechariah and notice that the destruction predicted by Zechariah of Jerusalem was immediately followed by what? By the arrival of the Messiah. Now, according to Jewish teaching, two ages were, were recognized in God's program. The first age was the age in which Israel was waiting for the coming of her Messiah. That was her age of anticipation. She's waiting for the coming of her promised Messiah, the seed of the woman who would um, destroy Satan and bring in the kingdom and remove the curse, etc. That's the first age. She's anticipating her Messiah. The second age was the age that would begin when he did arrive. The age of his arrival the age when all of Israel's covenant promises would be fulfilled and she would enter into the blessings that God had promised as a result of the Messiah's coming so you could say there the first age was the age of anticipation the second age was the age of arrival so the first age would be terminated the first age would end at the time of the appearance of the Messiah. The first age would be terminated by the appearance of the Messiah. And the second age would simultaneously begin. The first age was to end in judgment, as Zechariah predicted and other Old Testament prophets foretold. First, first age was to end in judgment. And Jesus also confirmed this truth with his recent predictions. And the second age would bring in the Messianic kingdom to earth. So the disciples then asked, in effect, question number one. When will Jerusalem and the temple be destroyed? As you have just predicted. And we know the Old Testament predicts. And number two, question, what will be the sign of your coming and consequently the end of this present age? That's paraphrased. However, what the disciples did not understand was that the Lord's parousia, the time of his official coming again to earth when he would be recognized and accepted by Israel and the time when he would defeat the nations gathered against Jerusalem and the time he would usher in the kingdom would not be for at least 2,000 more years. They didn't understand that. Of course not. Why would they? They still thought of the Messiah's coming as a single string of events an unbroken series of events that would occur over a relatively short span of time they they believed that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple meant you know this is what the Lord had just predicted the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem they they believed that this meant that the messianic kingdom would immediately follow they had no idea that because of Israel's rejection of her Messiah, the temple would be destroyed for some 2,000 years, at least. There's, they don't have a temple. You know, from 70 AD to today, they have not had a temple. They didn't understand that the temple would be destroyed um, long, 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 long before he would establish his kingdom on earth. They had absolutely no comprehension of the church age which would intervene between his two comings. They didn't see two comings. They didn't know about two advents. They only saw one, which was just slightly split apart. And they only devised that idea of a short split between two comings after Jesus, you know, repeatedly mentioned his departure from them. The, the Lord's disciples still thought excitedly, even at this point in his life, they were still thinking excitedly about the imminence of the millennial kingdom of the kingdom of, of God on earth 
Jesus, yes, he had spoken of his departure. He had spoken about going away. He'd even spoken of dying. But yet, they somehow thought that he was using mm, maybe allegorical figurative language and that at any rate, whatever happened, he would be right, he'd be back right away. He'd return right away. And we know that this was their thinking even after his death and resurrection because the last question the disciples ever asked Jesus before he ascended to heaven was, you can find it in Acts 1-6, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He's going up into heaven and they say, Lord, is it going to be now that you restore the kingdom? They must have figured that now that he had really proven who he was by his incredible victory over death, that it was time for him to pronounce himself king and destroy all his enemies, enemies being the religious leaders of Israel, and uh, that he would overthrow Rome and then under uh, usher in the, uh, the kingdom. So the return coming of the Lord, which the disciples had in mind when they asked their question here in Matthew 24, 3, was not a second coming as we think of it today. It was an official coming as Messiah, which was somehow strung together with his first coming. They were not really thinking of the Lord's return, because at this point, and up until the time when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and guided them into the full truth, they had no idea of his departure. The two questions then, which the disciples asked Jesus and which launched them in, in him into giving the greatest of all prophetic discourses were, number one, when will be the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? And two, what would be the sign of his official presentation as the Messiah, which would also be the sign of this, of this present age, the end of this present age? If we don't understand these two questions, we'll be like ships without rudders in the midst of a stormy sea in our attempt to understand the Olivet Discourse. And, uh, you know, this is why there are so many erroneous interpretations given of this important sermon, is because people don't really even understand the questions. So they come up with wrong interpretations of the answer. We must continually keep in mind as we study this sermon that this is a Jewish message. It was given to Jews, the disciples were all Jewish, about the future of the Jewish nation. And although there are applications in the Olivet Discourse to believers today, as is true of all scripture, yet the primary emphasis, the primary interpretation is for Jerusalem, the temple, and the Jewish people. The church age is not in view in this sermon. When the Lord responds to the disciples' questions, he does not discuss his coming for the church, which is known as the rapture. The rapture is not mentioned in the scripture until 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 58. Now we can look at John 14 and, and allude to it, but the disciples didn't understand it as a rapture. It's not, it's not explained until... 1 Corinthians. It's not in the Gospels, and we will not find it in this sermon. And this is going to shock some of you, because many of you will have heard preaching and teaching that has contradicted this. But remember, it is the Jews who require a sign. As Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 1.22, what were these disciples requiring, asking for? A sign. The Jews require a sign. The church doesn't look for a sign when it comes to the Lord's return. The return of the Lord. His return is imminent, and there are no signs that need to precede it. The church looks for the Savior. The Jews look for a sign. So the church is not in view in this discourse. I'll, I'll allude to this over and over again. Don't look for the rapture. When they're asking for a sign of his um, return, they're talking about 
the second coming of the Lord Jesus at the end of the tribulation. Now, they didn't understand all that, but that's what he gives in answer to their question. In next week's lesson, we're going to begin our long look at the Lord's response to these two important questions. His answer to the first question regarding the time of the destruction and the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple, we're going to find is given only in Luke's account. So we're going to begin next study, next week's study, with a look at Luke 20, verses 20 to 24. That's his answer to their first question. His answer to the second question regarding the sign of his coming in the end of the age is going to launch us into a panoramic view of the future from the tribulation all the way to the establishment of his kingdom. Pray. Father, thank you for spending time with us here this morning because we know that we're two or three or more are gathered together in your name. You are there in the midst of us. Thank you that your presence remains with us when we become members of Christ's body by being born again, trusting by faith in him as our Lord and Savior. We become members of his church here on earth. Thank you that there is no way you will ever depart from our individual temples our earthly bodies and hearts as you once departed from Israel in Ezekiel's day and then again how you physically removed yourself from the temple in Jerusalem on that last Tuesday of your earthly life. Thank you for the privilege of being members of your church, that we have been born in a time of grace and a time of completed revelation and a time of the blessed hope where we need not request or await any more signs before we see our Lord and where we moment by moment live with the imminent hope of of your arrival lord at any at any one time we will see you and behold you and be immediately in your presence glorified for all of eternity what a wonderful blessed hope that truly is lord we love you i pray that every woman will um, commit to spend time in your word to try to do the homework this this week not for anybody's benefit but her own and um, i pray that you will put a, a hedge of protection around each and every one of us and that we would truly be this week lighthouses for your truth for we do pray these things jesus in your blessed wonderful precious name the name that is above every name the name of jesus amen